Well, thanks for being here today. I know that uh, the rain is uh, on full force. Did anybody else get awoken, get woke up last night by the thunder and everything like me? Anybody? Was I the only one? We had this one, just this one big thunder thing that happened. And man, it shook the whole house uh, at my house. And and I think I was the only one that moved. So maybe it was just me. Maybe it was something else. Uh, But we had thunder and lightning and everything. And we had a little break earlier, but it looks all dark and gloomy out there again now. And I'm just glad you guys could make it here today. It's great to see global youth ministry here right in the front. It's good to see you guys. Hey, Roger, good to see you guys here. Thank you for making it all the way down the mountain this morning. I'm glad you all could join us today. We're doing a series right now uh, that we started last Sunday uh, called Mom Always Said. And uh, we're kind of doing three weeks in honor of our moms and learning some biblical wisdom uh, from things that mom expresses. And uh, one of the things mom always said was stupid is as stupid does. It's one of the phrases uh, that mom always said. Stupid is as stupid does. Let me just go ahead and get a show of hands. It's okay to admit this. I'm just going to ask everyone to be honest and transparent for just a minute. But has anybody, you can raise your hand if you want to. Anybody in here ever done anything stupid? Anybody here? Okay, good. So it's not just me. Good. Good to know. Uh, Ashley, you didn't raise your hand. Um, Maybe you've never done anything stupid, but it's great to know that some of you have and that I'm not in uh, all alone. I'm in good company. That's great to know. Uh, I've done some things that are stupid, you know, that are big, and I've done some little stupid things and everything in between, much like I'm sure some of you have also. And uh, so doing things stupid isn't always fun, is it? I mean, it's not always fun. This, this week, uh, I, I had a little experience. You know, I've got a, a smartphone like so many other people have these days. And uh, smartphones are cool. They change your life because it puts a computer in your pocket. It helps you be more productive and more in touch and better tools to communicate with and all that kind of stuff. It's great, right? It's great. And so when you buy the smartphone, uh, one of the first questions, at least where I bought mine, uh, the first question they ask you is, okay, what kind of case would you like to go with that. And, uh, and so they tell you, you need to have a case on the phone. I know you should have a case on the phone. The thing's made out of aluminum and glass. And so I know you got to have a case for the phone, but I, I, I don't have a case on my phone. I, I like my phone to be thin. I like it to slide in and out of my pocket easily. I don't like it to be a big bulky thing. And so I have a case, but I don't keep it on my phone. Let me tell you something, friends. I learned this week that that is stupid because here's what my phone looks like right now. Yeah, that's my cell phone right now. That's what it looks like. It's broken into a million little pieces. And not only is it broken, but the only way for me to get it fixed is to go through a pretty enormous expense. It's going to cost me some money to get it repaired. And so, yeah, I mean, when you have stupid in your life, it usually costs something, right? When you have stupid in your life, uh, it usually brings pain and suffering, right? And, and when you get to be about my age, I turn 45 years old tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, and so, I, yeah, thank you for the applause. All right. Okay. So... When you get to be about my age, you know, uh, you get to be where, some of y'all can relate to this, you get to where you can kind of look back on some of the things in life. You start to kind of look back and you start to kind of go, oh man, I really wish I hadn't done that thing. Or I really wish I'd have known about this. Or I really, really wish somebody told me I hadn't made this mistake. And you can look back on past successes 
and failures. You can look back and realize that, hey, my life is either together in certain ways or a mess in certain ways because of being stupid in the past, right? And, and here's the problem. In fact, this is the problem that we all have. I think we can all admit this. It's the first blank on your page. Uh, and if you're following along on youversion.com, uh, it's the first blank on there. And here it is. The first blank on your page is this. problem for all of us is we all have stupid in our life. We each have stupid um, in ourselves, in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about the person you're seated next to. <laughs> okay, I'm not talking about your boss or a family member. I'm talking about we all have stupid in our lives and we all make stupid decisions. And when we make stupid decisions, we pay the price. We have to deal with the consequences. Now, what if I told you that there was a way What if I told you that there were systems that you could put into place, principles that you could put into place? What, What if I told you there were things you could do in your life to help you eliminate many of the consequences of stupid in your life? Would you be interested in knowing about that? I mean, what if there were things you could plug into your life to help you to choose the right spouse? So that you don't end up paying the consequence of disaster and divorce and pain and heartache in that way. What if I told you there were things you could put in your life to help you know how to make wise financial decisions. So that you don't spend year after year after year living in servitude to debt. And eliminate those consequences. What if I told you there were, there were things that you could do to know how to deal with difficult relationships in your life so that you don't make the stupid choices of breaking those relationships and burning those bridges, but instead you're able to make peace and you're able to get past the obstacles in your life and you're able to forego the stupid consequences. Would you be interested in doing that? we got a bunch of people today that are graduating from one section of their lives to another, from one status to another. And so as you're graduating, I would imagine that you would always want to know how to be able to avoid consequences coming up in your lives. And for all of us, if you're going to graduate from one level of your life to another spiritually, you're always going to have to pass the graduation test. Okay, and so here's what I'm going to do. All of, the, all of the answers that you need, all of the solutions that you want to have to help you avoid all those consequences in life and to build a strong, solid, good life, they're all able to be answered through asking one simple question. I bet you really want to know what that question is right now, don't you? I mean, it's just one question. If you can ask this one question correctly and consistently in your life, you're going to be able to build the kind of life that has far, far fewer consequences than someone who doesn't know how to ask this question. So I want to show you what the question is. Here's the question. It's the next blank on your page, and you can write this down. I would write this down if I were you. Here's the key question for all of us. Here's the question. Who is in charge? Me or God? The question is, who is in charge, me or God? 
Ask that question with me, okay? Let's ask it together. Here we go. Who is in charge, me or God? Now, that that was terrible. You can do better than that. I know it's raining. I know it's gloomy, but kind of help me out. Here we go. Let's try it one more time. Do it with me. Here we go. Who is in charge, me or God? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. And it's the key question for anyone to be able to ask if you are dealing with any kind of decision in your life. Because if you can correctly answer this decision, and if you can truly acknowledge that you are following God's charge in your life and not your own, aren't you going to make better decisions? Aren't you going to build better systems? Aren't you going to live by better principles if God is in charge and not you? So the key question is, who is in charge, me or God? Now, in the universe, as we know it, in the whole universe, who is the answer to that question, me or God? Huh? Who's in charge of our universe? God is in charge of our universe. Okay, great. Okay, so we know that somewhat, it seems like. But let me ask this question. In your life, who's in charge, you or God? Now, I asked this question to several people this week. And it was funny because when I would ask the first question in our universe, who's in charge, me or God, they, they were much quicker than you were to answer that question. They were, they were like, God's in charge. And I said, great. Well, hey, how, how often is that the case in my life? And then there was this pause. There's always this pause. How often is God really in charge in my life, in my dating relationships? How, how often is God in charge in my marriage? How often is God in charge in my career decisions, in the way I speak to my kids, in the way I deal with my neighbors? How how often is God really in charge? There was this pause there. And I realized that this pause is there because we know, don't we? We know that while God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's in charge of the whole universe. He set every star in its place himself. We know that he's in charge We hold parts back for ourselves way too often, don't we? We hold parts and pieces back and we don't really give him the control that he wants. But listen to me, brother and sister, listen to me, friend. If you want to graduate from the level that you are at spiritually to the next spiritual level, if you want to move deeper in your spiritual walk, you've got to pass the graduation test. And the graduation test is always one question. Who's in charge here? Me or God? The thing about it is, the more you grow, the deeper you get, the older you get, the test gets harder And harder and harder. But it's always the same question. Who's in charge here? Me or God? You know, when you're little, when you're a little kid, the question about who's in charge comes around the question, am I going to hog my toys to myself or am I going to share my toys with someone else? Am I going to be selfish or am I going to share with my toys? Well, it's a no-brainer. Who's in charge here, me or God? God says you share, right? So it's easier to answer that question. But later on in life, when you're dealing with the death of a spouse or the betrayal in a relationship or a loss of a career and trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills and you've got to figure out how to make it work, how to deal with all that stuff, That same question, 
who's in charge here, me or God? That's a much more difficult question, isn't it? And so the question is, if you want to move from where you are to the next level, are you willing to take and pass the test? Because if you can acknowledge that you are allowing him to be in charge, that you're following his orders, that you're living by his principles, you will make the right decisions. And your life will take on a whole different color than it did before. The problem for us as believers, I'm just going to be honest, because I've been a believer for a long time, I've been in church for a long time, is we love to say God's in charge, but we don't even know what God says. He's in charge, but we don't know what his instructions are for our lives. We don't know what God says about how to pick a spouse. We don't know what God says about how to raise our children. We don't know what God says about how to function as an employee or an employer. We, we don't really fully understand. We don't know what he says. We don't grasp it. And so the thing that we need to know, the way that we answer the question, is God in charge or am I? The way that we answer that question is through his word. It's through his word. We've got to know his word so that we can step in the path that he calls us to. So what I'd like for us to do is if you've got your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to open to Joshua, the book of Joshua. It's in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles, do that. If you've got your uh, mobile device, you can follow along online or they'll be up on the screens for you. But I want us to look in Joshua at the very first commencement address that I could find in Scripture. It's a commencement address as somebody, as Joshua, is graduating from one status to the next. He's moving from follower to leader. And it's a big graduation for him. And God is the one that spoke at his commencement address. You probably kind of know the story. God was in the process of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He had created a great nation from Abraham's family. And there were many, 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 many Hebrew people that he had promised he would bring along. The problem is they had been held captive in Egypt for generation after generation. Hundreds of years they had been in captive in, they had been held captive in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt. But God raised up a leader. His name was Moses. And he says, Moses, I'm sending you to go and lead my people out. I've got a promise that I'm going to fulfill. I'm going to put them in the promised land. They're going to have a land where they uh, can worship me, where I can be their God. And, and we can show the world together, me and my people, we can show the world together who I am and what I'm all about. And so he sends Moses, Moses being the great leader that he was. Even today, the Jewish people recognize Moses as the greatest leader. He goes, he stands before the Pharaoh. You know the story, let my people go. Finally, the Pharaoh, after much arm twisting, lets the people go. They, They come out of Egypt. And then Moses leads them for 40 years through the wilderness as they wander. And they're wandering through the wilderness because they had sinned. They had disobeyed God. But Moses kept him focused. He kept him remembering that there's a promise. There's a promised land. We're going to be having fellowship and and worship with God in the promised land one day. But God had said that the 40 years must pass because a whole generation had to die off before they could cross into the promised land. 
And so what happens is God takes Moses uh, up on top of the mountain and Moses can look across the desert and see into the promised land. He catches a glimpse of the promise. There it is. Finally, after 40 years in the desert, finally, that's it. But sorry, Moses, you're not going to make it back off this mountain. Moses dies there on the mountain. And so God promotes Joshua. Joshua had been Moses' right-hand man. He had been a student under Moses. He had followed Moses. He had listened to everything Moses did, watched everything Moses did. He had followed along and helped Moses. And now he's graduating from being the servant, from being the helper, from being the student to becoming the leader. And in Joshua 1, we find God giving his commencement address. In verses 2 through 4, God's kind of setting up the answer to the question, who's in charge here, me or God? He says, I uh, am lamenting the fact that my servant Moses is now dead. My servant Moses, right? So whose servant? God's servant. God is in charge. And he says, now uh, I'm going to lead you and the people into the promised land. You now, Joshua, are going to take my people into the promised land. So my servant is gone. Now I, the boss, am promoting you, Joshua. And and then you guys are going to fulfill my plan. So he's saying, I'm in charge here. And I'm giving you a role of responsibility to lead the people. And what he says next is really, really interesting. So look with me in Joshua 1, 7 and 8. He tells Joshua exactly how to go about fulfilling his call and obeying God. He says this, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, the law, to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. He's very, very clear with Joshua. If you want to experience my plan, if you want to experience my will, if you're going to be successful and prosperous in accomplishing the things that I've called you to, here's the word. Here's my word. I gave it to you through Moses. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Stay on it. Be all about what I have commanded you. In fact, don't even just stay on it, but meditate on it day and night. Meditate on it. Let it be on your mind. Let it be on your heart. Let it be on your lips. Let it be all about everything that you're doing. Meditate on my word. And be careful to do according to all that is written in it. The next blank on your page is, is this. God's word is the only path to God's will. God's word is the only path to God's will. You hear me? God's word is the only path to God's will. You know, I know a lot of believers. Like I said, I've been in in church most of my life, and, and I know a lot of believers who believe that once you pray a prayer and once you come into a, you know, relationship with God, that you're good. And so God kind of plants, you know, his spirit in your heart. He does. Jesus comes into your life. He does. He begins his sanctifying work in you. He begins to change you. He begins to transform you into his image. He does. But the path that he uses to do that is always his word. 
The path to becoming more and more like him, the path to moving to the next level spiritually, the path to becoming his servant and accomplishing his will for your life is always in the word. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, we don't like to meditate on his word. We don't like to to immerse ourselves in it. We don't like to spend a whole lot of time in it because it's hard. It's hard to sit and read. I mean, we're, we're kind of the media generation now, aren't we? I mean, we like to have the music going, the TV blaring. Uh, it's difficult for me. I want to sit down and I want to spend some time in God's Word, but it's really, really easy to flip over to the Internet or to go online and check my email or to answer the phone when it's ringing or to deal with some other issue that pops up or just be distracted by something else going on. And it's hard to spend time in his word. And part of the reason it's hard is because we think, uh, let's just be honest, let's just be honest. We think that it's not really for us. We think that it's not really for us. I mean, it's, it's written uh, a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago, by people on another continent who never even had smartphones, never drove to work, you know. They, they never had to deal with the kind of pressures and the kind of situations that we have to deal with. And it's really not for us. But God's word is clear about this one fact. Hebrews 4 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, the word of God is alive and powerful. It's alive and powerful. Another translation says it is living and active. That means not only is it alive, but it moves into your life and it starts doing things. It's living and it's powerful It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What this is saying is no matter what situation you're dealing with in your life, no matter what kind of conflict you have, no matter what kind of decision you need to make, no matter what kind of baggage you're carrying, God's word cuts to the core of that issue. You and I want to band-aid it. We want to fix the outside. We want to make us feel better. We want to make people act right. We want to we make sure that we can pay our bills. We want to do what's on the surface. But God cuts to the core. And he doesn't, with his word, he doesn't just solve the, the, the symptoms. He deals with the root problem. He knows right where our heart is. And his word cuts right into the core of every situation today that we deal with. Our problem is that we try to deal with our situations, and let's be honest, we try to deal with our situations by our own intellect. We try to inform all of our decisions. We try to make good, godly decisions based on what we see, based on our observation, based on our experience, based on our education, right? And so we'll add God's word to that too. So we, we factor God's word, advice of friends, how it's going to affect family, what I've seen in the past, what I see over here. Well, here's how so-and-so does it. Here's how they dealt with it. And so we factor all these things in, and that's how we like to make our decision, is we like to make it by our own observation. And we factor all those things in, and we think that we come to a more well-rounded, complete decision. In our lives. I got to tell you this fails so often. Because we rely on things that frankly aren't reliable. Can we all agree that my knowledge. 
my experience, my ability to observe. Can we, can we acknowledge that all those things are very limited? They're very finite. They only go so far, right? And sometimes I, I, I inform my decisions based on things that are here today and gone tomorrow, like my emotions. I mean, I just, my heart breaks for the young couple that I counseled with just about two years ago. Both of them young, excited about their relationship, and wanting to get married. Both of them had just very, very recently come through some serious addiction issues in their lives. Both of them were dealing with legal ramifications of some of their addiction issues. They had both just been through a recovery program, and that's where they had met. And they fell in love. And they were going to be a beautiful couple. They were a beautiful couple. And they were like, we're just so excited. We want to get married. We just want to get married now. And, and start. we're starting everything over. Might as well start that too. And I just looked at him and I, and I said, stop. Please stop. Put the brakes on. You guys may be perfectly suited for each other. You may make a beautiful marriage one day. But based on what I see in God's word, you may not be ready yet to build a solid, Christ-centered marriage. Please don't jump into that yet. I'm very afraid. You're both carrying so much baggage from your very recent past. You're both carrying so much hurt from your very recent past. Please put the brakes on. Don't make this decision right now. And that hurt their feelings. They thought I was a stick in the mud. And they thought I was very closed-minded about their love. So they went ahead and got married about a year and a half ago. Today, they are divorced. There's disaster. There's pain. There's more baggage. More hurt in their lives. Had they only listened to godly wisdom, maybe that could have turned out differently. But don't feel bad. It's not just average, everyday, all of us. I mean, even the people that claim to speak for God fall into this same trap. I mean, us pastors fall into the same trap. I do, and I know other pastors that do also. In fact, I've got a friend who is a pastor of a church, and uh, he's a, a good friend of mine, or he was a good friend of mine. And one day he was sitting in my office, and we were talking, and I knew this about his church. I knew that they practiced a form of worship that I believe is theologically off base. And so I asked him in my office one day, we were just talking about various different things, and I looked across the desk at him, and I was like, hey, man, help me figure this out. I know that you guys do this particular type of worship over there, and I think that's not biblical. In fact, not only do I not find it in the Bible the way you guys do it, but I think I can make a pretty good biblical case against that, that it's actually wrong that you're doing that, and you're doing it in the name of Jesus. Why? Tell me why. Show me your verses. Tell me why you're doing that. And this pastor friend of mine, he, he looked back across at me, and he shakes his head. He goes, let me tell you, man, I know God's word doesn't talk about this, but I've just seen too much with it. And we're going to keep doing it. And I leaned across the desk and I touched him on the shoulder. 
I said, hold, 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 hold on just a second there. Pastor, do you hear what you just said? You just said, I know God says something different about this, but I've just observed something else. Who, what's the question here? Who's in charge here? You or God? Your observation or God's word? Who's in charge here? That's a hard conversation to have. But we all fall into this. We all make these decisions that bring these consequences later on. And his church, as far as I know, they're still doing that now. And they may continue to do that for a long, long time without, you know, consequences. But, but as a leader, as a pastor, I would hate to stand before God in judgment of the stewardship of the leadership that he had given me for that. Sooner or later, you experience consequences. The problem is, here's the problem, is that our observation, when we make our decisions based on our observation, when we decide that we know what's best, that we take circumstances into our own hands, when we decide that we know how to deal with this, and we don't really know what God's Word says, I don't really know what God's Word says, I know it doesn't say much about this, but I've seen this, when we make that decision on observation, on emotion, on input from others, on experience, on education. When we make that decision, here's what we're doing. We're synthesizing an opinion based on puzzle pieces. We pick up puzzle pieces, right, from all these different ways. Observation, experience, input from others, all these things. And we try to piece together the picture of what our lives ought to look like from those observations. And here's the thing. Everything, everything, everything we observe here in this world has one common denominator. Everything we observe is broken by sin. Everything we observe is marked by sin. And when we grab those puzzle pieces and start to piece together a puzzle, it's an incomplete picture. It's a broken picture. It's a sin-infected picture. Is that really the picture that you want to build with your life? That's why we make stupid decisions. That's why we go all off on, oh, just, we just love, we'll just live on love, and everything's going to be wonderful, we'll just live on love. That's why we live off of, well, I know God doesn't talk about this, but I've seen that. And that's why we experience the consequences that we experience. And so... Proverbs 3 tells us that we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not into our own understanding. We are to seek his will in all we do and he will show which path to take. The word also says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. You see, here's the thing. Those decisions that we make based on our observations, they're broken and they're going to lead to more brokenness. And the only input that you and I have as believers that is not marked by sin in some way, it's not damaged or scarred by sin in some way, the only input we have is the input that we have from God himself. Because he operates outside of the sphere of influence of sin. He comes from completely outside that sphere of influence and he gives us his word and he speaks it to us directly through the words on the page in your Bible and through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Do you want to make decisions based on your observation of scarred, broken, sin-marked pieces of the puzzle? Or do you want to make your decisions based on what God says, his absolute truth from his word, from his heart, from his will? So, you have to know who's in charge, me or God, and you have to step in his will. Andy Stanley has a great book out called The Purpose of the Path. I'm sorry, The the Principle of the Path. It's a great book. I highly recommend The Principle of the Path. Andy Stanley, great book. And in it, he talks about how wanting to be in God's will is, is good. And every believer needs to want to be in God's will. But it takes more than just wanting it. It takes more than just desiring it. And he talks about being on the path to God's will. And he tells stories about it, and and I'm not going to go into all those stories, but basically it goes like this. The service gets out here in just a little while, and let's just decide that I want to go meet my parents in Blairsville. So I'm going to go out and get on Highway 515 and drive to Blairsville. So I drive out of here, drive out of the parking lot, pull out on Highway 515, and what if I, wanting to meet my parents in Blairsville, turn south? Am I going to get to see my parents in Blairsville? Huh? No, I'm, I'm never going to get there because I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm on the wrong, I'm on the wrong path. I'm heading the wrong way. And I'm not going to arrive at the destination that I really, really wanted to arrive at. I may have good intentions. Oh, I really want to. Oh, I can't wait to have lunch with my parents. I really want to see my mom. I, I haven't talked to her in a while. I really want to see dad and catch up with them. I have great intentions, but I'm going the wrong way. See, here's the thing. It's not just enough just to want it, but we've got to start stepping in his path. We've got to not turn from it to the right or to the left. We've got to meditate on it day and night and be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have Success. You will find the life that God has for you when you step towards it in his Word, because his word is the path to his will. That's the way life is. Our problem with the word is we've turned it into something it's not. We've turned God's word into something that we sprinkle into our lives and we take with a grain of salt, just like we do everything else. I've been in your car. I've seen your Bible. It's, it's underneath the floor. It's on the floorboard of your car underneath the passenger seat. I know you're looking for it. That's where it is. I've seen it. Or it's on the back dashboard. Or maybe it's in your home and, and the last time you picked it up, you had to blow it off and, and get the dust off of it to be able to use it. It's just something that we have but we don't really invest in. We don't immerse ourselves in. But God's word itself tells us how to deal with it. In Deuteronomy, it talks about the way you deal with God's word. It says, repeat them. God's commands, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of God should be something that we are engaged in at every level and in every area of our lives all the time. And the result of being engaged in God's word comes for us in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the psalmist writes this beautiful poem and he says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked 
or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight, they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like the trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Isn't that who you want to be? Don't you want to be that strong tree that's not easily knocked down? Don't you want to be a fruit-bearing disciple of Christ? Showing off His glory in your life? Or do you always want to be hunched over carrying baggage from past stupid in your life? The last blank on your page is this. To be in God's will, abide in His word. To be in God's will, abide in His word. Jesus says... I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. To be in God's will, abide in his word. I love the description of Jesus at the first part of the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 3, he says this, In the beginning, the word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Think about this for a second. What is a word? We use words for what purpose? We use words to express our thoughts. We use words to express our feelings. We use words to express ourselves. And God uses the Word to express Himself to us. And his word has been with him since before all of time, according to this passage. And it says he existed, he existed. The word, he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, the word, and nothing was created except through him, the word. According to the gospel writer, John, Jesus is the word of God. If you want to be in God's will, abide in the word of God. You see, you and I as believers, if you're believers, if you've come into Christ, you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've become a believer, you come under the covering of him, you come into him, you die to your old self. You and I as believers, we know that you've got to to live by the word. We know that you've got to learn what his heart is for us and you've got to step in that plan, step down his path for us. But if you're not a believer, if you haven't ever surrendered your life to him, if you've just been trying to do right things, you've been trying to do less stupid and more smart, that's not the answer. You've got to abide in the word. You've got to come into Jesus first because everything is broken by sin, including your life. And that sin in your life makes you a criminal against a holy God. But, look at John 1, 10, and 11. It says, He, the Word, Jesus, came into the very world He created. But the world didn't recognize Him. He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. They couldn't see Him. They could not see Jesus as the Word because everything they could observe was broken by sin. All of us 
our sin scarred. And the result of sin in our lives is certain death. It's judgment against us. But in verse 12, John says, To all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who believe in the word, to all who abide in the word, to all who come into Christ, into Jesus, he gives you the right to graduate from criminal against God to child of God. So what's it going to be? Who's in charge here? You or God? Are you ready to graduate to the next level? As you make decisions in your life, are you willing to cede control from yourself over to God? I believe each of us want to be in God's will. That's why you're here today. Because you want to grow in Him. Ask Him. Ask Him, God, what, what do I do next? And open your Bible and let Him speak into your heart and into your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you don't keep yourself a secret from us at all. God, your word tells us that it's written so that we may know that we have eternal life. But Father, I know there's some people today who have never surrendered their life to you. Some people who are listening here in this room or or by the podcast who have never given their lives up to you. But Lord, today can be the day where they let go of control of their own life. They stop being in charge and they make you the Lord of their lives. Father, we know that when you're the Lord, you make the right call and we follow. So if you're here today while all of our heads are still bowed and you'd like to surrender your life to Jesus, let him be in charge of your life. I'd love to lead you in a simple prayer that you can pray quietly right where you're seated. You don't have to get up or raise your hand or anything. When you pray this prayer, it's a prayer of repentance and faith. It's surrender, saying, God, I don't want to live my old life anymore. I want to live for you. Just pray this prayer quietly where you are. He'll come into your life. He'll begin changing you into his image. A prayer goes like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I realize that I'm a sinner, that I've broken your heart by breaking your law. I've been in charge of my own life, but I've been stupid. I've made my mistakes, and I've sinned against you. But I don't want to live that way anymore. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me so much that you sent your word, Jesus, to die in my place and to be punished for my sin. As best as I know how, I place my life in your hands. I'm yours, Lord. Lead me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Do me a favor, everybody. Just...